All right. Good morning. Happy New Year. Um, did all of y'all make your uh, New Year's resolutions? Show of hands. It, it doesn't matter that I can't see you. Raise your hand anyway. How many of you are going to eat healthier? How many are going to exercise more? Uh, how many of you are going to read more? How many of you have already broken your resolutions? It's day three. Just, just saying. All right. Well, many of you know my family story. Um, but for those of you who don't, let me give you a brief recap. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. Um, and honestly, uh, even as I was preparing this, and, and he's, even as I'm standing here now, um, this, is, this is hard to go back and, and recall. Um, it's, it's difficult. Um, but uh, we, my family and I lived as missionaries in, in East Asia for a number of years. Um, in October of 2018, uh, we were arrested, uh, interrogated, and ultimately deported. We had planned on being there for decades, um, but we instead found ourselves right back here in the U.S. Um, that, that experience was traumatic, and it was devastating in many ways. I still feel the effects of the stress from that time in my body uh, every day. But there's one thing that I go back to more than anything in my mind, uh, and that's our team. In fact, I, I remember a conversation with Brian when, when Malik and I were um, weighing options about where we would end up when we got back. Um, and I remember talking at length with Brian about how much I lament losing that team and not getting to be with them and serving with them anymore. So what was it about that team that stands out so much? Well, one, one obvious thing is that we went through a traumatic experience together. We share that experience. Shortly after we were taken back to our apartment, um, literally, as far as I remember, it was, it was just minutes after we got back to our apartment, after our interrogation, our, our team leader showed up at our door. And I'll never um, forget the look on his face. Uh, and we just sat and, and cried together. And after that, in the days following, the week following, we met together as a team and, and we just cried and prayed and sang hymns and read scripture and um, we, we waited for our verdict. But there's something that goes well beyond that shared trauma that, that makes that team special. That team was our family. Our team leader intentionally set it up that way, and he cast that vision for us. We deliberately moved in to the same apartment complex together. We met together on Sundays for fellowship, and we met at least two other times during the week um, to talk about how to better reach our community with the gospel, to pray, to sing. We'd go out in the neighborhood together to engage in conversations, hoping that we'd be able to um, lead those into gospel conversations. And then we would come back and we would debrief together and talk about how things went and how we could do it better. Everything we did, we did in collaboration as a team for the sake of the gospel. Every decision we made was intentional. We were each other's support system. 
We were separated from our families, from our friends, from our, our home churches by thousands of miles. If someone on the team was hurting, we all felt it. If someone was celebrating, we celebrated together. Our homes were open to each other. We even went on vacation together. And when we came back to the U.S., we lost that. We still stay in touch, um, but it's, it's just different. It's not the same, and we miss that deeply. So when I was talking to Brian about coming here to Redeemer, this is what I talked about. I remember that conversation like it was yesterday. I want a church that will be like that for each other. I want another gospel-centered team of people who are family for each other. But I'm not naive enough to think that it's going to be quick or easy. It's not something we do here in the U.S., not usually. But I want to look today at the instruction that Jesus gives us in John 15. I think we may see that if we're not intentionally pursuing something like this, we're missing out on something profound and really beautiful. Last week, we walked through the first 11 verses of, of John 15, and we looked at, at what it means to abide in Jesus as branches in the vine. Today, we're going to continue that passage. So everything that I'm going to talk about today builds on what we talked about last week, on abiding in the vine. You can't even really get to what we're discussing this week without abiding in Jesus and Jesus in us. And we'll see that as we go along. As we talked about last week, the vine in John 15 is Jesus. All life flows through him. So if we as the branches are to have life and bear fruit, we must abide in the vine and the vine in us. We also talked about branches that have no life and therefore bear no fruit being removed and branches that do bear fruit being pruned so that they will bear more fruit. The central theme of last week is that everything in this passage is done for the flourishing of the vine. And when the vine is flourishing, our joy is made full and Jesus and the Father are glorified. All right. Let's look at, we're going to back up a couple of verses and pick up where we left off last week. But I'm going to, I'm going to read um, John 15, 9, and we're going to go um, through 14 real quick. It says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do it, I command you. We abide in Jesus and he in us if we obey his commandments. His commandment is that we love one another as he has loved us. So we abide in Jesus if we love one another. You can't obey the first and greatest commandment, which Jesus said is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we don't obey the second, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. We need to see here that the love that is talked about here doesn't originate in the branches. It flows through the vine. Verse 14 
If the branches don't abide in the love that comes from Jesus, that comes from the vine, they can't love. Love always starts with Jesus, at least the love that Jesus is talking about. But this goes deeper than we often realize. If you flip back just a couple of pages to John 13 and look at at verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here's the point. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. But here, Jesus seems to be emphasizing something a little bit different. There's something unique about love among the branches. He, he completely raises the bar here. Love among the branches is not to merely be as you love yourself, but is to be as Jesus has loved us. And this is mutual. Love of our neighbor, if they're not among the body of Christ, cannot be mutual, at least not in the sense that Jesus describes love flowing out of himself. Jesus' love that flows through those who are in him, it's just different. And it's actually enticing for those who are not a part of the body, which is why he says that, that you will be known by your love for one another. People will take notice when we love one another like Jesus is describing here. Let's look at the next couple of verses in in John 15. This is my commandment in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus is saying that obedience is a characteristic of those he befriends. That's because the source of obedience, namely love, is flowing through us if we are his friends. And his commandment is that you love one another. Jesus modeled this relationship for us and explained it in verses 9 and 10, which says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So let's look for a second. Jesus abides in the Father by abiding in the Father's love. The commandment of the Father is to love, and Jesus loves by abiding in the Father's love. Likewise, we are to abide in the love of Jesus and be a conduit of his love to each other. Your participation in this friendship is to abide in Jesus which means you obey his commandments, and his commandment is that you love one another as he has loved you. Let me me step back and walk through that one more time. That's a lot to take in. Jesus abides in the Father by abiding in the Father's love. The command of the Father is to love, and Jesus loves by abiding in the Father's love. So Jesus makes himself a conduit of the Father's love. That's how he obeys this commandment. Likewise, we are to abide in the love of Jesus and be a conduit of Jesus' love to each other. Your participation in this friendship is to abide in Jesus, which means you obey his commandments. And his commandment is that you love one another as he has loved you. Now, it's important to see here that we aren't united first to one another. But our unity with Christ binds us eternally together. There's no unity outside of Jesus. Without Jesus abiding in us, we aren't even part of the same vine. 
But if we are a part of the same vine, then our purpose together collectively is to bear fruit. Remember, the point of this passage is the flourishing of the vine. That means that as the branches of the, of the vine, we desire that both we and other branches bear much fruit. We like to talk about being a part of the family of God, right? We talk about that, and we, we like to talk about unity in the body of Christ. But we don't really live as if it were true. And this passage is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we don't mean friend like Jesus means friend. Think about this with me for a second. If we're really honest, we'd be frustrated if someone from our church just dropped by our house unannounced. We'd be appalled if someone came in and saw our house in disarray or saw laundry on the sofa. It'd be seen as intrusive to ask if we could go to somebody's house for dinner. These are things that families do. But we don't see our church family as family. And, and so often in the church, if we disagree about something, we don't, we don't hash it out and try to grow from it. We just move on and we find another family. We'll find another church, right? We talk about being a family, but our lives don't really line up. Much of the time, Church is just like a country club, and our relationships in the church are largely superficial. We feel like we need to put on a smile, go make sure that everybody thinks that we're okay and put together. Do people in the church know the real you? Do you know anyone well enough that you can trust them with the real you? Are you making yourself available to really know anyone else? And I, I don't mean the Instagram version. I mean the face-to-face, heart-to-heart version. If you came to a place in your life where, where you were in need, could you run to the church? And I don't just mean the organization. I mean people in the church. Could you go to them and present your need to, needs to them and ask them for help? Would they be honest if they couldn't help? Or would they help if they could? Would they feel your need with you? Would they mourn with you? Or would they rejoice with you when you're rejoicing? Would you help or feel the need if somebody in the church came to you and presented a need to you? If we were really in each other's lives like this is talking about, we would likely already know the needs before they were even presented. And these are just basic things. Jesus commands us in the church to love one another as he has loved us. And how did he love us? He laid down his life for us. How are we doing with that? Be honest with yourself. I didn't say beat yourself up, but but be honest with yourself. Here's what I mean by don't beat yourself up. Abraham and Moses were called friends of God. But God has never called a friend of Abraham and Moses. Jesus' disciples here are called friends of Jesus, but Jesus is never called a friend of his disciples. God never takes on himself the title of the friend of anyone. In Matthew 11, Jesus is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but that's a title given to him by his critics. It's not something Jesus ever claims for himself. So why is that? What is the point I'm getting at here? God is both entirely other and entirely self-sufficient. 
He doesn't need anyone. No one can provide companionship for God. No one can provide anything to God. He is fully satisfied in and of himself. And that goes back to the Trinity that we were talking about last week. So God gains nothing for himself from your friendship. Everything given in this friendship is from God to us. Since God freely gives his friendship to you, not based on what you can give him, but based on the completed work of Jesus on the cross, you don't bear the weight of trying to maintain this friendship with God. And since our relationship with other believers is based not on what we can give or take in those relationships, but in the completed work of Jesus on the cross, then we're free to flourish in those relationships without the weight of having to make sure that we present ourselves in a certain way in front of others. So you're free to be vulnerable and you're free to serve and love one another because your connection is in Christ. And we do this for one another so that as branches, so that we as branches will be healthy and that we will all collectively abide in Christ so that the vine as a whole will bear much fruit. If we stop and think about it, most of the time, our friendships are based on common interest. We find friends that like the things we like. But in the body of Christ, our common interest is Jesus. This goes so much deeper and has so much permanence than fickle interest and personality preferences. Jesus continues in verse 15. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. This is a really remarkable statement. If you read through the New Testament, you see that Jesus' disciples still considered themselves, even after Jesus died and, and rose again and ascended into heaven, even after that, Jesus' disciples still considered themselves to be his servants. And Jesus' statements in this, in this passage point to the need for obedience, which is what's required of servants. But Jesus here blows up the construct of what a servant is. Servants are, are just to do what the master asks. They're not invited to the table, and they're not privy to the business of the master. Before we go any farther, let, let, me, let me step aside and say, in order for us to move from the status of servant to the status of friend, the debt that is owed must be paid. Jesus initiated this friendship by paying the debt that was owed to him by dying on the cross on our behalf. And now that Jesus has paid that debt, Jesus says that being friends means that we, we tell each other, we share each other's business. But this idea, like many of the things that Jesus talks about, doesn't, doesn't even originate in the New Testament. If you go back to the Old Testament, you can see in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, Abraham is described as a friend of God. And listen to what God says about this friend of God in Genesis 18, 17 through 18. It says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? So as those to whom Jesus is a friend, who are brought near through his blood, we are brought in to be a part of the plan of God for the redemption of mankind that was determined before the foundation of the world. 
As Kevin preached on a couple of weeks ago, we were given a ministry of reconciliation. The plan of salvation of the world has been revealed to us because we've been declared to be friends of Jesus. And that's what Jesus reiterates in the next verse. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And this verse clearly teaches that. It's not of our own works that we're saved. We didn't even choose Christ. He chose us. But there's something else in this verse, in verse 16. Every you in verse 16 is plural. This is a collective commandment. It's a collective message to all the branches. Remember, the theme of this passage is the flourishing of the vine, the overall collective flourishing of the vine. Our desires for the, the vine to produce much fruit, and the vine produces fruit through the branches. A, a vine that only produces fruit through one branch is not a healthy vine. If, we desi- if our desire is that the vine flourish, we can't just be about our own relationship with Jesus or about our personal fruit. And so we seek the vine dresser, pleading with him that he provide what is needed for the entire vine to flourish. Listen to a couple of verses. In Luke 10, 2, Jesus says this, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In Ephesians 6, 9, Paul says this, And pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And again, in Colossians 4.3, Paul says, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. We pray together for the flourishing of the vine, that the vine will bear fruit through the branches. In my name is not a tagline or an incantation. It means that we are praying according to the mission of Jesus. And when we're doing that, the Father will give whatever is needed to accomplish that mission. Remember that it's the Father that is taking care of the vine to begin with. He wants the vine to flourish, so he'll supply what is needed for that to happen. And as our prayers align with that, they'll be answered and our needs will be supplied and we'll be encouraged together by seeing God answer the collective prayers of the saints. Please note, if you are not abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit in accordance with abiding in Jesus, you have no reason to expect that your prayers will be answered. If his word is not abiding in you so that your prayers line up with his word, you have no reason to expect that your prayers will be answered. If you're maintaining separation from other branches, meaning that you're not engaged with the local body of believers for the purpose of mutual encouragement and building one another up so that the vine will flourish and bear much fruit, then you have no reason to expect that your prayers will be answered. But if you're abiding in Jesus and he and his word are abiding in you and you're praying in accordance with that, then ask away. 
and do it together with the branches around you. The Father will hear and will answer and the vine will flourish and the branches will bear fruit. Paul gives some insight into this in Romans chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. I'm going to flip there. I'd encourage you to, to look there with me. Romans chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. It says this, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So look at what Paul's saying. He wants the church in Rome to be built up and for himself to be built up as well. Why? So that we may bear fruit. Or in his words here, so that we may reap some harvest. And he prays to that end. Do we long for this? Do we pray like this? I don't. Not always, not even often, not with, not with that kind of zeal and longing. Do you? What are we doing? Verse 17, back in John 15. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The purpose of this whole teaching of Jesus is so that we will love one another. Wait, I, I thought it was so that the vine would flourish and bear much fruit. Yes, those things are not mutually exclusive. They're actually the exact same thing. The fruit is love and the means of bearing fruit is love. You see it? Remember what Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. In John 13, 35 that we just looked at, it says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you prove to be disciples of Jesus by bearing the fruit of loving one another. Bearing fruit is dependent on us abiding in the love of Jesus, and that love in us produces love for one another. And our love for one another builds us up as we mutually encourage one another in faith to do good works. And we pray for one another that we'll each be filled with the Spirit of God, that the love of God will flow through us so that we may bear good fruit. All of this is inextricably tied together. How do you see your role in the local church? Do, do you see that you have a role in the local church? Do you see that your role is something just besides just attending? It's more than just attending. It's more than that. Are you devoting yourself to the building up of the body so that each branch will bear fruit? If you're in Christ, you're not an insignificant part of the church. 
We need each other. Your gifts are for the building up of the church. And if you're in Christ, you have gifts. Are you using them? Sometimes it seems like the goal of many is just to slip in and out of church unnoticed. Why? If you're in Christ, then his spirit dwells in you. That's huge. You have a role to play in the church. Don't squander the gifts that God has given you that are meant to to help the church to flourish and to grow and mature and be built up. Are you maximizing the gifts that you're given or are you just trying to fulfill your religious duty? Let Let me press a little bit more. Do you come to church just to hear the sermons? I'll tell you this right now. You won't be here long. We'll let you down. Do you come here because your friends are here, but you devote yourself to a Bible study over here with another group and get all of your your teaching from two or three podcast pastors over here? Now, I'm not saying not to take advantage of resources, but are are you just trying to build up your own personal knowledge base? Or are you devoted to the growth of our body? If you have deep community elsewhere in a church that is devoted to the gospel, then why are you with us? Go be there. Go be with them and devote yourself to the building up of the body there. If you're in student ministry or part of a student ministry, that's great. It's great that you're partnering with other believers to reach the campus. But is that part of your life separated from your engagement in the local church? Why? Your work on campus should be an extension of your fellowship in the local body. Your engagement in the local body shouldn't just be to fulfill the requirements of student ministry. That requirement that they give you to be in a church is there for a reason. It's not just to check a box. Your your involvement in student ministry is a great way for you to connect the body of the church with the campus. It's, it's not an opportunity to segregate your work on campus from the local body. Regardless of how you're serving or, or in what segment of society you are, we can't segment off our personal work for Christ from the work of the body. You will wither and the body will be affected by your withering and your absence. This is why the gathering of the body is so important. We had a season where we couldn't gather in person at all, and and even today, we're online. We can't gather in person, and we'll probably still have some more days like that. And I hate it. But as time has gone on, fewer and fewer people get on Zoom calls. Fewer and fewer people get on on Sunday mornings to gather with us. We'll, We'll often prioritize other things instead of GC gatherings or or, or other gatherings with the body. This isn't to shame anyone, and it isn't to say that things don't come up. And it's not about perfect attendance. But are you engaging? Are you devoting yourself to the flourishing of the vine? Or are you devoting all your time and energy in another direction with very little left for the church? Let me go another direction with this. When you are empty and tired and depressed, 
Where do you go? The church body is meant to be a place where you can go and be encouraged and built up, where we can bear one another's burdens. Unlike God, we are not self-sufficient. We need friends. We need one another, and we need friends in the way that Jesus means friends, not just the way that we typically define friendship. We need friends that are all up in our business and are pouring life into us. Can we admit for a second that we don't do this well? And we honestly don't have very many examples around us about what it looks like to do this well. It's something that is largely left out of our culture, even the culture within our churches. But we're not without an example. Many, many would point back to the early church in Acts, in Acts 2. But I want to point to a better example than that. And it's the example that Jesus points to here. Jesus laid down his life for his friends. Jesus no longer views us as servants, but friends. This is what Jesus modeled in his relationship with the disciples. And it's what he sent his disciples out to do. Go read about his engagement with his disciples and the fellowship that they had together. Go look at it. Yeah, this this is going to be awkward for us. It's going to be a stretch. This is going hard against the grain of our culture. The way of Jesus is definitively countercultural. We can't allow culture to stand in the way of obedience. And our obedience is to love one another as Jesus loved us and laid down his life for us, all for the health of the vine from which we draw life. So can we take some steps in that direction? Can we begin to pursue what it might look like for our church to look like a close-knit team of missionaries all working for one purpose? Can we begin to engage each other in ways that will promote the building up of the body? Can we begin to pray for each other so that we will flourish and the body will flourish and we'll be able to make an impact for the kingdom? Let's do this together and see what God will do. Can we begin to take those steps? It's going to be messy, but it is more than worth it. Just think about what might happen in this city if we begin as a church to operate like a close-knit team of missionaries. You in? Let's pray. Father, honestly, this is a terrifying sermon to preach because this is not something that I do well. This is not something that is, is comfortable or easy. But Father, in seeing, um, in seeing the richness of this text, Father, it's something I want. It's something I desire for our church to operate like this, to be for one another, to love one another as Jesus loved us. Father, let that be what our church looks like. Father, let us pursue that. Let us take steps to see that happen. Let us pray to that end. Father, let our, our lives be transformed and let, let our lives look like what, it, what, it's, what Jesus says when, they, when he says that they'll know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Let that define our life in this body that we love one another in a way that society takes notice. And Father, let it be 
for the glory of Jesus and the fame of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.